Dakar. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff to talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. From the CSB studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, on the MTR Radio Network. This is the Passball Show, brought to you, of course, by JohnPielli.com. Coming at you live. Um, definitely a lot of stuff going on in this hour. I want to try to hit all these topics up and kind of get my interviews in. I'm going to be uh, attempting to call Bill Gulkson in a little bit, about 6:10, maybe a little bit after, and then uh, Matt McBride, the outfielder for the Colorado Rockies, uh, will be joining me hopefully before the end of the hour. But you know, if you check out Bases Empty blog, which is what I post to my JohnPielli.com website, you could also check that out on MTRmedia.com slash JohnPielli, where it has all my articles. And I, you know, I, I really write, you know, my daily blog because, you know, let's be honest, this is something that I just love to do. And, you know, to sit back there and take myself into a generation or a time, and that that's kind of the basis of a lot of my historical articles that I write, you know, write about people and, play, and players that, you know, some people don't. Some people don't give them enough credit or enough recognition, and I feel just going back into time and acknowledging, you know, to certain players for what they did, I think is worth it. And one guy that I actually talked about, you know, a couple of days ago was Tommy Davis, and Tommy Davis was the outfielder for the, the the Los Angeles Dodgers, was actually drafted by the Brooklyn Dodgers, and was actually a very good power hitting outfielder in 1962 and 1963. And really led the team to the World Series championship over the Yankees in, of course, the '63 season. And here was a guy that was a, a bona fide power hitter, a guy that goes that would go out there and you know can drive in 140 runs like he did in 1962. He could you know win batting titles like he did in '62 and '63. And then he, he had a he had a tough injury in 1965, a broken ankle, which nearly derailed the guy's career. And what I find fascinating about it was, you know, he, he hung around for a couple seasons and actually had a second wind and was a very, very impactful and important player on the Baltimore Orioles teams of 1973 and 1974, where they ended up uh, winning the, the American League Eastern Division and losing to the Oakland A's in the ALCS. And, you know, came up there as a different type of hitter, as more of an average hitter. You know, he lost a lot of his power because of his injury but still was a very good run producer and had a very good career. The guy had over, you know, 2,100 hits in his career. 
and stuck around. And let, let's be honest, I mean, if it wasn't for the injury, he could have possibly been a Hall of Fame type player. And you know, fortunately, he uh, you know he you know he st- stuck around for the better part of about 16 seasons, and you know really doesn't get the recognition. I think. I mean, was one of the best players on the Dodgers teams of you know the early 60s. You know, a team that had Maury Wills finished third in the National League MVP voting in 1962, and he drove in 140 runs. And you know, Maury Wills win you know steals over 100 bases that season, wins the you know the MVP. But you can make a very good case that Tommy Davis should have won the MVP in 1962. So, you know, that's a guy that I do I do feel like deserves a little more credit than he got over the course of his career. Of course, he was traded to the Mets in a deal that sent Jim Jim Heckman and uh, Ron Hunt to the Dodgers and ends up, you know, playing for some bad teams with the Mets, the White Sox, and, of course, the Seattle Pirate Pilots before going on to the Houston Astros. But, you know, the guy has a nice second win to his career with Baltimore, finishes on a high note, gets to play in a couple ALCSs before end, hanging it up. Um, you know, towards the end of the 70s. But Tommy Davis, a very good career. Um, another guy that I talked about was uh, Jason Kubel, who, you know, maybe the possibility of him being dealt is probably reduced a little bit by the trade of Justin Upton. But let's be honest, if you're the Arizona Diamondbacks, you probably have a good enough outfield to go by, to get by, if you end up moving uh, Jason Kubel. I mean, let's be honest. You look at you look at a team that ends up, um, you know, that that has Cody Ross, who they signed as a free agent. You got another guy, who who they who they still they still have out there in uh, Gerardo Parra, and of course the two uh, B rookie sensation Adam Eaton, who I think is going to have a phenomenal year as a rookie this year. So the Diamondbacks, if they wanted to make a trade, could. But let's be honest. I think it's very unlikely that this is going to happen. And we're going to talk a little bit about Delman Young. Delman Young was a not-so-sought-after free agent this year, and I think a lot of people get caught up in the whole uh, thing that happened in New York and, you know, the whole history of Delman Young being the bad guy or not the bad guy or whatever. Um, you know, listen, this is a guy who could still could still hit a Major League Baseball. He could still be a presence in a lot of middle orders of a lot of baseball teams. The fact that the Philadelphia Phillies signed him for one year and 650000 guaranteed or 750000 guaranteed was an absolute coup. You know, let's be honest. I mean, you, know, you add this guy, and listen, he may not be able to play defense, which is part of the reason why there might be a little bit of an issue with this. There, there might be a chance that this deal may not work out. But tell me it doesn't work out in the Phillies' favor. I mean, to give the guy what is really considered the Veterans League minimum in Major League Baseball, and a guy to have a huge upside to the fact that he could go out there and hit 20 home runs, drive in 80 runs, and play in that bandbox of a ballpark at Citizens Bank. And listen, I think that I think that's something that's insane. And and uh, the Phillies, I think, did a very very good job of bringing of bringing him in, and I think uh, they're going to benefit. They're going to they're going to do a very they're going to have a very good offensive team I mean they added Michael Young to play third base and I think he's going to have a bounce back year of course you got Howard and you got Utley and Carlos Ruiz who's going to help out Ben Revere playing center field and now you throw Delman Young in to a point where the guy probably doesn't even have to play every day if you put Dominic Brown you probably can if you want to you know run John Mabry Jr. out there and Lance Nix 
and try to fill up the other the rest of the outfield in some way, shape, or form, you could do it. But the the bottom line is you bring a guy who has ridiculous power into a small ballpark. I th- I think there's there aren't too many bad things you could say about this. And if you're 29 other major league teams, you say, hey, I probably could have taken this guy in on the same type of contract. And I think I think it's a situation where the Phillies. Listen, can you look back to a move like this and say, hey, this is a move that could actually put them over the top. I mean, I still think it's tough if you're competing with the, the other teams in the division. I mean, I think you're talking about other teams that may not necessarily have, uh, you know, you know what what the Phillies have, you know, in the, in the Marlins and the Mets. But, you, you know, you're matching them up against the Nationals and the Braves, and I think they could compete. And Delman Young was a very good move. Uh, for for the Philadelphia Phillies, especially for the veterans minimum of 750000 I mean, here's a guy that could go out there and put up some numbers. And he could go out there and, you know, he has history of doing very well in the postseason. You, you saw it over the last couple seasons with the Detroit Tigers. New York Yankee fans know it. They've seen it firsthand that Delman Young is a very good postseason player. And I think you add, add that all in there and you say this is a situation where the Phillies could end up doing well with this. And I think, you know, the Delman Young move to the uh, to the Philadelphia Phillies is going to, you know, could end up being one of the more underrated moves of the entire offseason. But um, back on to, you know, another remaining free agent, and we talked about it a little bit before, and that's Michael Bourne. And I've talked about how I don't really mind seeing the Mets go out there and sign Michael Bourne. But I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to sign with the Mets. You know, we've talked about all offseason about how the Mets are so cash strong and may not be able or willing to put out the extra amount of money it will take to bring in a player like this. And I think that it's a situation where, you know, where where you're, you're talking about a team that may not necessarily have the finances to be able to pull off a signing like this. Met fans are still out there saying, hey, we could get them on a one-year deal. I don't think it's happening. And in my honest opinion, uh, I, I, honestly, I honestly sent a, uh, you, know, you know, I really don't think that, I, I don't think, I don't think it's a situation where <clears throat> you could say that it's a foregone conclusion that he's going he's gonna to go to the Mets, especially with Scott Boris as the agent. Scott Boris is still out there trying to do something, you know, in regards to try to maybe sell a team that may not be thinking that they need Michael Bourne and maybe convince them that they do. Remember, he did that last year, you know, when it came to sign, you know, with the Nationals signing Edwin Jackson. The Nationals would never have signed Edwin Jackson if it wasn't for a special trip that Scott Boris made to the house of, uh, of the uh, owner of the Washington Nationals and kind of just convinced them and said, listen, I think I need you to to sign this guy because he's going to help you that much. And Edwin Jackson did a very good job for the Nationals this past season. And I think that, you know, something like that's going to happen, but it's not going to be a one-year deal. Scott Boris is going to go out there and convince a team, whether it's the San Francisco Giants, whether it's the Texas Rangers, who, let's be honest, have not done anything to upgrade their offense they lost Josh Hamilton. They lost Michael Young. They lost Mike Napoli. And, of course, they replaced the latter two with Lance Berkman and A.J. Przinsky. But they have a huge hole in their lineup that they were unable to replace to this point in Josh Hamilton. 
And I think Scott Boris is going out there and trying to word it in a way where he can convince the Texas Rangers that they need Michael Bourne. And let's be honest, Michael Bourne is not Josh Hamilton. And, in fact, they are two totally different kinds of players. One's a power hitter. The other one is, you know, a guy that bases his game on speed and, you know, some defense. So Scott Boris has a task right now of trying to convince a team like the Texas Rangers that they need Michael Bourne. And I'm convinced that he's going to do it. If I had a guess right now of where Michael Bourne ends up, I'm going to continue to say until the move is officially made that he will sign with the Texas Rangers. Because the Rangers don't really have any more options. You know, Justin Upton was just traded to the Braves. You know, he talked all offseason about how Upton would be a good fit and how the Rangers would want to add a guy like this, you know, to their lineup. And, yes, obviously they would, but now it's not going to happen. And the Texas Rangers are looking at themselves. They're out, they're out on, that, on, that, on that prom date, you know, going out to the dance floor with nobody to dance with right now. But they, they need to upgrade their offense in some way. The Rangers have to go out there and compete with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And, of course, the surprising Oakland Athletics who have come out of nowhere. And let's not forget about the Seattle Mariners. You know, the Seattle Mariners, the number six org, you know, that we all refer to, you know, as a team that goes out there and just takes anybody. They've obviously done that this year. They brought in a lot of different bats, a lot of power hitters, a lot of guys that could go out there and do the job. But nobody that's definitive. Nobody that you could say it is a legitimate, um, you know, starting player on a team. But I can see the Mariners going out there and surprising people, particularly if the Rangers don't don't go out there and finish this thing off. If they don't go and they make this this big move, you know, once again, if Michael Bourne doesn't end up with the Texas Rangers, he will end up. Um, he he will end up, you know, with a different different uh, team. But, you know, the Mets certainly become a possibility. And when we're talking about um, we're talking about a team that really, uh, you know, could use a big move. And I think Michael Bourne, like I said before, would be a good addition to the Mets. Maybe not for all the reasons that people say it would be, but I would say just for the reason of putting themselves a competent, qualified outfielder out, out there. And I think it'll be a, a solid uh, a solid move if they're able to do it. Some people don't like it, but um, I think it's a, I think in the end it's a, it'll it'll be a move where the Mets can say, hey, listen, we put a, a competent outfielder out there, a guy who's going to play center field for us, you know, every every day, uh, on a uh, on a on the everyday you know given basis. And once again, I've mentioned this, and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face: the Mets don't have an outfielder. But you know, if you're thinking about other options for Michael Bourne, I do I do think it's interesting because there are other teams that could kind of slide in there at the last minute and end up uh, end up taking him. Um, one of them, one team will not be the New York Yankees. I just don't see a fit. I mean, they got you know Granderson and Brett Gardner and Ichiro, three left-handed batters. I don't think they're going to add another left-hand batter to an outfield that they already have. So I think that's something that really has to be considered. Um, and 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 listen, I think I think you know in the end he will he will end up in a spot where possibly nobody's thinking. I think Scott Boris is going to do everything he can to try to pin, you know, the match between him and the Texas Rangers. And it's up to John Daniels and the and his staff and Nolan Ryan and everybody over there to try to decide if that's what they really want to do. And if it if it turns out not working out, 
you know, I think Michael Bourne may end up having to take less money in less years. And that's going to be an absolute loss for a super agent Scott Boris. If he's not able to get Michael Bourne at least four years, then he has not done his job. And I think that, you know, Boris and his, you know, his, you know the, everything he has with his law degree and his sweet talking and his way to pin certain players and matches and put them on the right kind of team. I think that this is a situation where, you know, he's going to end up getting getting his man. He's going to get his, his guy a contract, and I think the Texas Rangers are going to be the best fit for him. But listen, we're going to take a quick break, man. Uh, we're going to jump back into some more pass ball right after this. GRRadio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. Hey, what's going on, Bill? It's John Pielli. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yeah, you got it. All right, for all listeners, I apologize. A little little confusion before, and, you know, sorry, I guys, you know, I had to hear that. But, uh, you know, I got on the phone right now former Major League pitcher Bill Gullickson, who, of course, you know, had a very good career from 1979 to 1994. And once again, I want to thank you for having a couple minutes, my friend. You got it. Hey, I, I tell you, I was just talking to, uh, I, you know, my one of my prior guests on the show, and I didn't even make the connection until today. But uh, I spoke with Mark Grant, who, of course, you know, he was a oh, yeah. you know longtime pitcher for the Giants and the and the Padres. And I didn't realize that you guys went to the same high school. Same high school. He was. Uh, I was like a senior. He was like coming in as a freshman. 
and then I got drafted, and then I watched his career through, and we pitched against each other one time. <laughs> how, did, how did that turn out? Uh, he was with Seattle. I was winning, uh, I think I was winning 3-1 to one in the ninth, and I gave him a two-run homer and got taken out. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny, man. And listen, now, you know, obviously you had a very good career. You know, you started out, you were, you were a very high draft pick of the uh, of the of, um, the Montreal Expos. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of your career. You know, you are drafted number two in the 1977 draft, got quickly up to the major leagues by 1980. Tell us a little about your path, you know, from, you know, where you were in high school to the Montreal Expos. Right, I was in high school, I got drafted uh, number two in 77. Went to A-ball, sort of struggled for a while. I was three and three that year, and then I came back to A ball, and uh, I was like nine and seven with a low ERA. Got moved up to Double A, learned a little more, came back next year, went to Triple A, and won like my first three games, two complete game shutouts. Uh, did well, and then lost six in a row, and I just couldn't figure it out. And they sent me back down, which was the best thing that, that ever happened to me in my career, and I learned. I got sent back down. I was, you know, I was like 19 years old in AAA, and everybody else was getting into bars and stuff like that. I couldn't get in, and I was just, I was, I was overmatched on the field and socially and everything like that. So I went back to AA, back with guys I was familiar with, uh, learned a lot about pitching, had some success there. Got called up at the end of the year for a short cup of coffee, and then came back next year went to AAA, and I was there like uh, a month and a half. And then got called up. Yeah. Now, now, as you get through the you know the earlier part of the '80s, you played on some pretty good teams. You know, the teams that you know had Andre Dawson and Gary Carter and those guys. Tell us a little bit about being part of that team. You know, and unfortunately, they were you know they made the they made the post you know you guys made the postseason in 1981, but we're never able to really build on that. Tell us a little bit about you know those Montreal Expo teams. Right. We were, when I came up, I was uh, like 21 years old. Uh, we had, you know, Steve Rogers was the ace, and uh, I always watched him pitch and see how he did it and stuff like that, so that helped me out. Uh, we had, you know, Carter Dawson, uh, Reigns came up during that year, uh, uh, Parrish, uh, Ellis Valentine, Chris Byers. We had, we had a, a really good team, but we always fell a little short. You know, we were... Uh, we had like two outs in the playoffs that year. We were beating the Dodgers two to one. Then Rick Monday hit the home run and knocked us out. Yep. But uh, we never recovered from that. You know, that year was our year, I think. And uh, you know, to come up in the Expos organization, which was a great organization with a great minor league. Jim Fanning ran the minor leagues. Uh, Bob Gebhardt, Larry Bernard, uh, those got the minor leagues is where it was at with Montreal. You know, most most of the guys were homegrown guys. Uh, we came up through the system, uh, and then you know in Montreal there we we geez, we averaged like thirty five forty thousand a game in the early eighties there, and then uh, you know I think because of the financial situation, uh, you know once we get a free agent in Montreal, most of the guys left. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Right. Uh, is, there, is there any regrets as far as that team? Did you feel like that was a team that had, you know, so much more potential than they, they showed? Was that a team that you felt could have won a World Series? Uh, you know, when I look back on it, I think, you know, we were up on the Dodgers 2-1 to one in the ninth inning with two outs, and Monday hit the home run, and they went on and eventually beat the 
Yankees in the World Series, but uh, you know, regrets. No, I don't have any regrets. You know, everybody everybody pitched in and did their job, and uh, you know, we had a good group of guys, and everybody had each other's back, and uh, you know, you learn from it, you move on, and everybody sort of went on different teams after that, you know, and uh, you know, a lot of those guys are still in baseball. Yeah, they're absolutely. still running, running the ship in a lot of different organizations. Yeah, definitely, man. Now. I'll tell you, one thing that intrigued me about you a little bit is after the 1987 season, of course, you played with the the Reds and the Yankees that year. You ended up going to Japan. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you this question because I thought I, I, it was something that intrigues me. Was your decision to go to Japan, did that correlate with anything going on with the collusion amongst the owners in baseball and their decisions to you know, hold off or try to control free agency at the time? Oh, oh definitely. You know, yeah. I was... Uh... I was like 27 years old, had 100 wins in the big leagues. Uh, I was with the Yankees, and they called me in at the end of the season and said, uh, here's the contract we're going to offer you. And it was a cut in salary from what I was making. And I was a free agent. And uh, they said, nobody's going to come after you, so don't worry about this. The only offer you're going to get. And then uh, the Tokyo Giants came into play and called me, and I went over there. And, you know, they offered me a contract, which was like twice as much as the Yankees offered. And I was like, you know what? I'm an adventurous guy. I'm going to go over there and see what it's like. Now, now so I went, and, and it, it was very difficult going over there and, you know, learning Japanese baseball and stuff like that. But once I learned it and once I, uh, you know, put my American pride to the side, uh, things worked out pretty good. Now, was there, was there a lot of talk amongst players, you know, players that were hitting free agency at the time, that something like this was going on? Like, was, was there, were you speaking with other players who were saying, you know, what's happening right now is wrong? Well, I really didn't have to speak to other players because it was pretty obvious what was going uh, on. Nobody, nobody was going after anybody else's players. And, uh, you know, I really didn't know if I wanted to go back to New York for what they offered me. And then uh, the Giants came in and offered me twice as much. And I was like, hmm, i got to look at this and see what's going on take care of my family and see what happens and if I can still pitch when I come back I might give it a shot when I come back yeah now obviously you ended up doing that you ended up joining the Astros in 1990 a year later with the Detroit Tigers you win 20 games tell us a little bit about the 1991 season you end up going out there winning 20 games and of course you know end up finishing your career with the Detroit Tigers right it was sort of a you know I went to Japan uh, I didn't have quite as good as stuff as when I was a young kid I learned how to pitch a different style. Uh, you know, I watched the Japanese pitchers, how they pitch. They could throw breaking balls 3-0 on the corners and stuff like that. So I learned my breaking stuff and my off-speed stuff got much better. So when I came back here, I was going to retire, and I said, you know what, I've still got something in me. I still want to play. So I signed with Houston, and I had to make a team out of spring training, which I did. And then I went into rotation, and, uh, you know, I pitched pretty good that year. I had uh, losing record, but we had, we had a bad team in Houston that year. And then, uh, you know, all the stuff I learned over in Japan, I just sort of added it up and put it into my American repertoire. And, you know, I, when I won 20 games, I didn't have as good a stuff as I did when I was young, but I knew a lot more about pitching. So that helped me out. And plus, we had a good offensive team. Yeah, those, that Tiger team uh, ended up scoring a lot of runs that season. Now, now tell, us, tell us a little bit about what, what it took to be a pitcher like you were because, you know, one thing that stands out looking at your stats is you were never a real a real big strikeout pitcher. 
you know, a lot of season, a lot more innings pitched than strikeouts. Um, did you right. did did you did you find a you know maybe necessarily like a pressure to have to you know hit certain spots and change speeds to a certain extent to you know get hitters to just kind of hit the ball where you want them to, you know, not being a strikeout pitcher. Right. I, th- I think I became more of a contact pitcher. You know, the older I got, uh, you know, I didn't have the good hard breaking ball and the good fastball that I had when I was younger. But I always tell everybody if you knew what you did at the end of your career that you did at the beginning, you could be you could be Dwight Gooden. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but uh, you know, at the end of my career, I didn't have half as good stuff as I had when I was younger. But I knew a lot more about pitching, about the game, how to go about preparing, things like that. So that that prolonged my career about four or five years. Yeah, it absolutely did. Now, you know, of course, you know, w- one thing that I would, every time, anytime I talk to a pitcher, they always, they, they always kind of like to talk about, you know, the offensive aspect of it. You know, you had a chance to hit three major league home runs in your career. Are those three memories that stick in your head as much as like a lot of other pitchers do? Oh, much more. I could tell you what the weather was, what the wind, wind was, uh, what I ate for breakfast, everything. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when you're a pitcher and you hit a home run, it's like, oh, my goodness. And you sort of get around the bases as quick as you can and get in the dugout because you don't want to show up the other pitcher. <laughs> nah, that's that's <laughs> funny, man. Hey, I do want to ask you one more question about the you know the 1981 sure. postseason. You know, you, you actually pitched pretty well there. Was it was it, a, was it a totally different type of environment than pitching in the regular season, or were you, were you just simply able to just go out there and kind of kind of do the same thing during a regular season game? Uh, you know, I pitched, I pitched two good games against the Dodgers, and I, I lost both of them. And uh, Bert Hooten, I pitched against Bert Hooten, who won the uh, MVP of the series. Yes. But, uh, you know, I was, I was so young, I really didn't, you know, I just went out and tried to do the things that I could do and uh, keep you, you know. So I didn't get caught up in too much of the, uh, oh, this is the, you know, division series or whatever and all that stuff. I just went out and tried to pitch and keep my team close, and I tried to keep the same attitude, but but when it's a playoffs, it's a little different because, you know, it's it's a crucial game. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Bill, I want to thank you for having some time to uh, be part of the program today. Hopefully I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Hey, anytime. I love talking baseball. Uh, thanks a lot, Bill. And once again, that was former Major League pitcher Bill Gullickson. Of course, Bill played from 1979 to 1994 with, uh, of course, teams like the Expos, the Reds, the Yankees, some time in Japan with the Tokyo Giants, the Houston Astros, and Detroit Tigers. And one thing that fascinates me about, uh, you know, about um, Bill Gullickson is the fact that, you know, he pitched a lot of innings, and he pitched for a long time not being a strikeout pitcher. And I know you look at certain guys that did have that kind of success where they're able to, you know, pitch in the latter part of their career and were strikeout pitchers at the beginning of their career. And that's not the case with Bill Gullick. He came in, you know, his first year was uh, 1980, where he struck out 120 batters in 141 innings. And then had a, you know, a little bit of a drop after that going into the strike-shortened 81 season. But after that, I mean, he pitched, you know, in 1982, 236 innings, 155 strikeouts. So it kind of went down from there. And he kind of made the adjustment to being a contact pitcher at a very early stage of his career. And I always found that fascinating about Bill Gullickson. And, you know, of course, he was caught up in the collusion scandal of, you know, the, the mid to late 80s. And, you know, that was, that was a tough time for a lot of players because there were free agents and, 
you know, the owners kind of tried to grab grab the ball back and say, listen, we don't like the fact that free agency has started, but we're going to control what happens with free agents. And I think that's something that, you know, the players, you know, yes, they got compensated over time, but I've mentioned guys like Bob Horner who had his career totally destroyed by it. He had to go play overseas where he wasn't comfortable and was never the same player again. He came back one year with the St. Louis Cardinals and realized he couldn't play anymore. And there was a guy that was on a path to have a phenomenal career, and it was destroyed by what these owners did to the players with that whole collusion scandal of the mid to late 80s. And I thought that was a, you know, just a, a, an ugly, ugly situation, and it affected a lot of players, not just the couple that were mentioned, not just the couple that ended up being compensated afterwards, but many, many players had, had their careers either derailed and sometimes ended because of what happened with the collusion. But we're going to try the whole phone thing again. And, you know, listen, if you could bear with me, I do want to just uh, send this last call. We're going to try to get a hold of Matty McBride right now. And, you know, what we do is, of course, Matt McBride is an outfielder for the Colorado Rockies. And he has uh, really uh, got himself to a position where I think he could have an impact this year. And we're going to give a call out to Matt. You know, to see how it goes. Of course, we know Matt from the uh, from being part of the Ubaldo Jimenez trade came from the Cleveland Indians to the Colorado Rockies. Well, this, hey, Matt, what's going on? It's John Pielli from the Past Ball Show on the MTR Radio Network. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, man. I appreciate you having a couple minutes today. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, first of all, let's uh, let's let the fans know. You know, you know how things are going with the off-season workout program. You get a you know, you know, you getting yourself ready for the season? Yeah, yeah, everything's going well. Um, yeah, it's coming up fast, but, uh, yeah, working out, um, you know, hitting and throwing uh, every day. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be here before you know it. No, absolutely, man. And I always look at the, you know, the first of the year, you know, January 1st is kind of being a turning point to go from, you know, the off season to now it's not so much the off season. It's getting closer and closer. So, you know, I kind of I kind of feel it from, you know, the fan and the guy that covers the game, too. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. It's, it's uh, um, you know, right, it seems like right when Christmas is over, it's like, all right, January's hitting, and, um, yeah, it's, you know, the next month, February, uh, spring training. So, yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. I mean, it seems like once Christmas is over, bam, it, it sort of kicks into high gear. Yeah, I tell you, the next thing you know, we'll be, like, halfway through the season, dude. It goes by so fast. But, uh, Matt, you know, you were drafted in the second round by the the Cleveland Indians in 2006. Um, did you did did you figure uh, you know you were you were on a path to get to the major leagues, or was this something that you felt like it was going to take a long time? Um, you know, I feel like anybody that you know that, that signs, you know, you, you've got to have the attitude that you you know that's your end goal to make it to the uh, the big leagues. Um, that's why that's why we all we all do it, you know, to to try and reach that goal. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it took me a while, but you know, I wouldn't trade for anything. Met a lot of you know great, great guys, teammates, and uh, coaches along the way. So uh, yeah, it's been you know, it's been you know, definitely some ups and downs, but um, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Now, absolutely, man. Now you know, over the last couple of seasons, you've you've certainly torn it up, and you know, particularly in AAA, uh, you got a chance to make it to the majors this past year. Tell us a little bit about. You know, finally getting to the majors and what it was like playing for the Rockies last season. Uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, uh, you know, it was a great bunch of guys in, in AAA, and uh, we had a young team in the big leagues. But I mean, 
obviously. Um, uh, yeah, I think we had a, a good core group, and like, like I said, we have a lot of young guys there, so it's going to be interesting to you know see going to spring training. I mean, there's a lot of injuries in the big leagues, but um, I can perform better than what I did when I was in the big leagues last year, so I just got to try to work hard and, and uh, you know just try and get better. I mean, there's always there's always things you can do to be um, you know to better yourself. So I'm just trying to do everything I can. Absolutely, man. You definitely seem to have the right attitude. Of course, you came over to the Colorado Rockies in the trade at San Ubaldo Jimenez to the Cleveland Indians. Uh, tell us a little bit about how it was like and how you found out you were traded. Um, yeah, we uh, actually, everybody, Alex White, uh, Drew Pomerantz, and Joe Gardner, we were all actually in, in uh, playing for the Akron Arrows at the time. Alex, um, actually, like a rehab assignment. I think he made his big league debut, I want to say, a couple months earlier. Uh, but he was rehabbing, and, uh, yeah, so we were all there. And, you know, it was like, I think either Drew, Drew was going to start or Alex was going to start, and the other one was going to pitch back. And all of a sudden it was like right before the game, you know, they, uh, our manager called us in and was like, yeah, you guys are scratched from the lineup. And, you know, obviously we knew something was up, but uh, he couldn't tell. He didn't tell us exactly. And then as the, or as the game progressed, um, I forget who it was, might have I can't remember who it was, but somebody uh, that was in the clubhouse, maybe one of our clubs, we saw it on, uh, like on the, like the ESPN bottom line or something about it, like the <laughs> trade going through, and that's how we found out. Oh wow, that's pretty. That's pretty interesting, man. Now, was it? What is the situation that they called all you guys in the office at one time, or was it individually? Uh, well, Joe. I mean, uh, since Joe uh, Joe Gardner, he wasn't starting. He's was actually in the uh, in the. Uh, in the stadium charting that day, he wasn't uh, wasn't pitching, so we knew that something was happening with you know myself and Drew and Alex, just because we got scratched from the lineup, but we didn't know you know exactly for for what you know exactly what happened um, until like I said the game progressed, and then after the game, that's when we found out Joe was also in the trade too, um, you know because you know our manager told him after. Oh wow! I tell, I tell you, that's, that's pretty interesting to see how that, that that stuff all goes behind the scenes. Now, once again, this is John Pielli. I'm speaking with Colorado Rockies outfielder Matt McBride. Now, Matt, you actually started your career as a catcher. Tell us a little bit about your transition from being a catcher to an outfielder, where you are right now. Um, yes, yeah, uh, I grew up catching. So, um, like even at spring training, I'll uh, like I'm gonna report with the catchers and I do some uh, do some catching and. Uh, even last year, I caught last two years actually. I caught eight games in AAA. Well, last year I caught eight games in AAA, and the year before I caught uh, eight, eight games split between AAA and AA. So uh, you know, I still get back there occasionally. But like I said, I grew up doing it. So you know, when I do get back there, I, I, I enjoy it. It's not like I, you know, I'm like, oh crap, I got to catch that. Actually, I do like get back there, but. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a lot different, especially going from you know catching where you're you're in every every play, uh, compared to you know going to the outfield or first base. It's a little bit different mindset. So um, yeah, it's just you know it's a learning process trying to you know talk with other you know, your teammates that are, you know play that position and you know the coaches and everybody to just try and you know learn as much as you can about the position and just get the reps in. Yeah, no question. And I tell you, I mean this question will probably answer itself. Obviously, if the Rockies came up to you and said they wanted you to be a catcher, you would do it. 
but do you have any any like aspirations in the back of your head saying, listen, I would really like to see if I could make it as an everyday catcher? Um, I mean, really, where, uh, wherever I can, you know, go to, you know, help the team out or, you know, I don't, I don't really mind. <laughs> uh, definitely a lot, you know, more toll on the body, but, um, you know, like right now I'm you know, I catch bullpens, uh, back home with, uh, my college team, you know, and, and catch a couple other guys that, that need to throw pens that, um, you know, help me get, you know, get the work that I need going into spring training, you know, for, for getting my legs, you know, my legs under me and everything. So, uh, when I do get down there, it's not like I'm catching bullpens for the first time, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, like I said, wherever wherever I can go, you know, be that catching first base outfield, um, you know, I'm just gonna go out there and try and learn as much as I can about that position, and, you know, go at it. Yeah, no question, man. Now, Matt, listen, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the program, and hopefully, we get to see you playing for the Colorado Rockies next year. All right, thanks for having me. Hey, anytime, man. Take care. And once again, that was Matt McBride, outfielder for the Colorado Rockies. Now, Matt. You know, got a cup of coffee in September, or actually maybe maybe a little bit before that. Ended up playing in 31 games, uh, 78 at bats. He, he had 205, two homers, 11 RBIs, playing outfield and first base. But the thing that interests me is his numbers down in in the minors over the past four seasons have been phenomenal. I mean, he drove in he drove in 87 runs in 108 games for uh, you know AAA for Colorado last year, and you know the guy hit 344 should have earned himself more of a call-up. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to really get into him too much about, you know, what, what he felt, of, you know, whether he felt like he should have been up on a major league team for longer. But I, I'll make that case for him. I mean, here's a guy that, you know, was tearing the cover off the ball in AAA and a Colorado Rocky team that, let's be honest, wasn't really going very far. And, you know, he got a chance to go up there. Obviously, you're going to see him in spring training and hopefully he gets a spot on his team. But here's a guy that, you know, has shown over the course of four years uh, you know, two in uh, 2009 with the Indians in the, you know, in the Cleveland and Colorado trip, uh, AAA, ended up uh, hitting 287, 18 homers, 89 RBIs. A year later, 279, 2175. So you know he's showing that he could he could be a run producer. You know certainly at the AAA level, and you know a guy that's that young and where he is at that stage of the game certainly should be able to translate into the major league. So you know I obviously wish Matt the the best and uh you know hopefully he has some success you know we get to see him in the major leagues and you know as always want to thank him for being part of the show but uh listen we're going to take a quick break man only about maybe a minute or so and we'll get back we'll finish up everything going on with the past ball show right here on the mtr radio network welcome to mtrradio.com you can listen to our live programming monday through friday Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 stream it live and on demand. MTR.
yeah, welcome back. This is the Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli taking you right up until 7 o'clock today where, uh, you know, stay tuned to MTR Radio. I believe you have uh, Philly Baseball Beat followed by MTR Sports Report taking you up to about 10 o'clock tonight. So a lot of stuff going on. Of course, if you become a fan of MTR Radio on Facebook, you still have a, uh, you know, a chance at, a, at a winning a $25 gift certificate to Dick's Sporting Goods. Of course, if you haven't yet, you could download the iPhone and the Android app, you know, search MTR Radio, and then you can listen to our broadcast either, you know, not necessarily from your computer, but from your phone and handheld device. But as we're trying to finish up the show today, I do, of course, want to thank my guests for, you know, for t- today, Mark Grant, Bill Gullickson, uh, Matt McBride. But one thing I was thinking about before, and, you know, we were talking about this, you know, earlier, you know, when it comes down to putting your teams together, for you know the the spring training, get yourself ready to go out there and do what you got to do. You know, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of uh, different like side things that you got to think about. But I think after you get to the end of January, you can start really saying the teams that are constructed as they are are probably going to be like that going into the the uh, spring training. I mean, there's there'll be some more you know minor league contracts and stuff like that. But once you hit the end of January. The, the significant players should be all off the board. And I do predict by the time, you know, we reach on the show next week, um, you know, January the 31st, Michael Bourne will be signed and Kyle Loesch will be signed. So let's see if I'm right. But I do want to give you guys a chance to call into the show. I don't get to do that too often. I apologize. But uh, 609-910-0687. Uh, once again, 609-910-0687. We'll get you right up in here for the last 10 minutes and like I said, I apologize. I you know try to get you know guests on the show where I could get a little little perspective from the other people and the players and stuff like that. And I don't really have time to take as much phone calls. And you know I don't want to make it seem like I don't want to hear from you guys. If you want, call in. We'll definitely get you up. Talk about whatever it is that you want right here on the Past Ball Show. But um, one of, you know I was writing my blog last week and I was talking about Tom Seaver and Tom Seaver, of course, the greatest player to ever play in the history of the New York Mets franchise. And everybody knows about what happened in 1977 when he was traded to the Cincinnati Reds for Doug Flynn, Dan Norman, uh, Pat Zachary, and Steve Henderson in one of the you know worst trades that you could ever see an organization make. Not necessarily, you know, you could talk about Nolan Ryan. You could probably bring up some others, but the trade of Tom Seaver in 1977 was such a gut-wrenching blow to the fan of the New York Metropolitans. And Seaver ends up coming back in a trade with the Cincinnati Reds for three players, joins the team for the 1983 season. Of course, he has that that big hero's welcome that he gets at Chase Stadium when he's there pitching opening day of 1983. And then the season ends. And then what I don't think gets enough publicity, enough uh, notoriety, enough acknowledgement is how the Mets totally dropped this thing and screwed it up more than they ever could imagine. You know, obviously they had the free agent compensation uh, era, which lasted, I believe, from 1981 to 1985, and it was set up to where teams were upset because players were not uh, players were signing from one team to the other, and it became a bidding war. And the teams that didn't necessarily have the the uh, money or um, or the best interest of the team that ended up uh, the player that ended up signing somewhere else would end up losing out. And teams like the Yankees would go in there and just sign whatever free agents they wanted. 
and free agency had become the point where it was about the big spenders and not so much about the other teams. And the teams that were losing free agents were losing, you know, not only on the field but in the attend, you know, when it came to fans attending their games. And what ended up happening with Tom Seaver is, you know, the the team the teams had a certain amount of players that they could protect, and it was up to twenty six players when they put this comp- compensation round into free agent signings. Free agents would sign with a certain team, and then that team had a chance to pick out of not only a a, li- a list of players unprotected by that particular team, but a list of players unprotected by all Major League Baseball teams. And what ended up happening is Dennis Lamp signed as a free agent from the, the Chicago White Sox, ended up going to the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, Dennis Lamp, you know, I followed Dennis Lamp towards the end of his career in the late 80s where he was a reliever spot starter. He was actually a pretty good pitcher for a while. He had some good years with the with the Chicago White Sox. The Blue Jays signed him as a free agent, uh, being part of the postseason team of 1985. And the White Sox end up taking Tom Seaver from the New York Mets. And Tom Seaver was left unprotected because Frank Cashin and the Mets front office thought that there is no way a team's going to go, number one, spend the money on Tom Seaver that it would cost to ta- to keep him aboard, and number two, why would you want a guy who you know, was obviously a Hall of Fame pitcher, but why would you want a guy that's on the end of his career, he's coming off a 9-13 season for the New York Mets in 1983, why would a team want to take him as compensation for losing a player in free agency? And the Mets obviously could not have been proven any more wrong than they were. And they end up losing Tom Seaver to the Chicago White Sox, and in my opinion, I think that was just as bad as the day he was traded from the New York Mets to the Cincinnati Reds. Because I think, you know, Tom Seaver coming back in 1983 was a reunion. It was it was bringing back the franchise. And you thought as a fan that there was no way this guy was ever going to leave here. He's going to finish the rest of his career with the New York Mets where he belongs. And that, for one little glitch, one little oversight, one little misunderstanding or misconception by Frank Cashin, Frank Cashin in the New York Mets front office, ends up costing Tom Seaver the chance to finish his career with the New York Mets. And I think to me, this opens up a whole different realm of things to talk about. Because, you know, what if Tom Seaver sticks around and finishes his career in 1986 with the Mets when they win the World Series? I mean, I'm sure. The Mets really had no intention of getting rid of him. Maybe they maybe they would have let him go as a free agent. It's quite possible. I mean, maybe he ends up getting traded. But I think once the Mets had traded for him from the Cincinnati Reds again, I don't think they really had any intentions of letting him go. I mean, I think they let they were going to let the all-time Met finish his career with the New York Mets. And the Mets obviously were, you know, they were coming back. They were still down in 1983. 1984, they got a little better. Of course, they had a very good season in 1985. But you wonder if Tom Seaver was still around. Number one, how much of an impact would he have? He ended up winning 16 games for the Chicago White Sox after that. So he obviously had something left in the tank. He obviously wins his 300th game with a Chicago White Sox uniform on. I think the Mets were all conscious of all these things, of what they would get at the gate for Tom Seaver wearing a New York Mets uniform, winning his 300th game. And, of course, the only Mets, you know, you know, of course, later on in his career, uh, Tom Glavin ends up doing it. 
But, you know, how much would that mean to the Met fan to see Tom Seaver win game number 300 with the New York Mets? And what kind of impact does that have on a 1986 team? If Tom Seaver is part of the rotation, do the Mets trade for Bob Ojeda? You know, and maybe maybe this ends up impacting the team in a negative way. Not intended, obviously, because the fans would have loved to have Tom Seaver. Obviously would have loved to win another World Series with Tom Seaver pitching for the New York Mets. So I, I just think there's so many different things to talk about. I don't think it gets enough publicity, enough discussion about the second time Tom Seaver ended up uh, being ostracized for the New York Mets. First, it was via trade, and second, it was being a compensation uh, you know, awarded to another team that signs a free agent. And let's be honest, who got the better part of the Dennis Lamp for Tom Seaver trade? And, and honestly, you know, Tom Seaver ends up going to the White Sox, ends up outperforming Dennis Lamp by a mile, and showing he certainly had something left in the tank for the next couple of years. So who would the White Sox rather have had there? Dennis Lamp, who they were sad because they lost as a free agent, but they end up getting a compensation pick, and they end up bringing in, of course, Tom Seaver. That was also the same offseason that they brought in Floyd Bannister, who was a good, who was a good left-handed pitcher. They added both of those guys to the rotation, and unfortunately didn't have the success that they expected. But they were a better team after that offseason than they were before. But uh, once again, I want to thank my guests today, Mark Grant, Bill Gullickson, Matt McBride. A lot of great stuff going on here in the Pass Ball Show. We're going to tune in, of course. Stay tuned in for uh, Philly Baseball Beat. It's going to be on from 7 to 9 today. MTR Sports Report will join you after that. Um, I'm going to stick around for a recording of the Carlucci Show, which will be on from uh, 8 to 10 o'clock on Saturday. So definitely tune into that. You'll get to hear me. You'll get to hear Greg Carlucci. And, uh, of course, for everybody here at MTR, want to uh, wish you guys the best of a week. We'll get back next week right here on the Passball Show, MTR Radio Network.